Welcome to OnAmp. Oh no, not another marketing podcast. I'm your host, Will Davis. I'm the Chief Marketing Technology Officer and co-founder at RightSource with over 20 years experience in the marketing space. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from strategy to content to MarTech platforms and everything in between. You'll hear honest talk about successes and failures with our guests, plenty of analogies, maybe a couple jokes, and a lot of data points along the way. It is definitely a challenge. Um, people refer to the to data centers and those sort of industries as commoditized. It's basically something that's just pretty standard and a lot of the aspects of data centers are basically the same. So one of the things that differentiates us, it's our personality. We have uh, very large data centers in Ashburn, Virginia, which is known actually as Data Center Alley. There are a gazillion data centers there. And a lot of them are these huge, just blank white buildings. I've heard them referred to as like early 60s Soviet architecture. Ours actually are, are the exact opposite. Uh, they have uh, purple and yellow and blue on them. They're lit up at night. They're actually kind of cool looking. Welcome. With me today is Evan Bass, Marketing and Communications Manager from Raging Wired Data Centers. Evan, thanks for joining us today. Um, you have a fantastic story just jumping right in about your uh, near fame as a game show host. Yeah, well, well. Near fame or infamy, I guess, depending on how you look at it, uh, it was all very well-intentioned. We had a, a company off-site, and as a bit of an uh, icebreaker, we had an idea to have a Jeopardy game, which, you know, would be fun. I had all these questions prepared about um, alma maters of our, our key executives and trivia about the cities that we have data center locations. And I thought, this will be fun, and I had it so well-planned. And I'm getting into this thing. I even had like a warm up. I said, you know, which which Alex Trebek do you prefer, the one with the mustache or the one without the mustache? And I had a get up <laughs> to put on a wig and a mustache. So we did all that. And then I hit the play on the Jeopardy uh, program, and it totally seized up. And it was the worst, slowest played Jeopardy game ever. And basically, we didn't even get to half the board. Um, and I thought, wow, this would be pretty epic if I wind up getting axed over trying to impersonate Alex Trebek in a offsite Jeopardy game. <laughs> But luckily, they saw other value in what I brought to the company than my pathetic game show impersonation skills, and I uh, was able to carry on. But yeah, so the lesson for all of you out there, never trust technology, <laughs> always double check. And when you're done double checking, go ahead and triple check, and then you're good. <laughs> well, that's funny. So a variety of backgrounds from game show host <laughs> um, to um, B2B marketer. But prior to that, uh, you were a sports writer. So uh, talk to us a little bit about how that background in journalism um, you know, has led you to where you are today. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective. If if I was ever asked or had the opportunity to speak to college students at my alma mater, the University of Maryland, I would tell them, just be open to anything. If you can write and edit, there are so many things you haven't even thought about, you don't even know about, that are potential ways to have a career and make money. And I was uh, a child of the 70s, which was really one of the golden eras in sports. I mean, Huge personalities, huge talents, everybody from Muhammad Ali to Reggie Jackson to uh, Joe Namath and, and, you know, you had Howard Cosell presiding over all of it. I mean, it was just such a, a compelling time to turn on the TV and, um, and just be enraptured with that. And also at the same time, and some of the real deep sports fans listening to this will, will totally relate to this. That was the time of the emergence of possibly the greatest marketing organization in history, NFL Films. Mm-hmm. Without NFL films, our perception of the NFL is entirely different today. And one of the, the really great 
just absolute weapons NFL films had was a guy named John Facenda. F-A-C-E-N-D-A, Google him. Can only hope that my voice on this podcast comes anywhere close to his. Bingo, exactly. He was just epic. And he had all these great uses of figurative language when he would talk, all kinds of great metaphors, and it just made it, for a young kid, your eyes just widened like you wouldn't believe. So I was really, you know, just captivated by the sports scene in the 70s. Newspapers were everything back then. You know, there was no internet. There was nothing. If you wanted to know what happened, you picked up a newspaper. And um, so I read the newspapers, you know, all the time. And eventually, through some encouragement from a, a ninth grade English teacher, I got onto the student newspaper, started writing, etc. Majored in journalism in college at the University of Maryland. Covered sports all throughout there. Every sport, sports I'd never covered, like like college wrestling, which is a really pretty intense thing to cover. Some really inspiring things I saw, things I still can't believe actually happened as well as basketball, football, soccer, all the above. And um, so then graduated college, great, here I go. Ready for, you know, ABC News and Sports Illustrated and everything, (laughs) and this will be the era of Evan, you know, for the next 25 years. And the era of Evan basically meant, you know, getting paid nine or $10 an hour to uh, cover high school sports at a local paper, occasionally get thrown to a college game or maybe even cover a pro game if there was a local athlete who was on the, on the pro team. And it wasn't bad. It was fun. I mean, all the rest of the people at the paper weren't getting paid anything either. So there was a lot of collegial spirit there. But the reality was, you know, nine or 10 bucks an hour isn't going to get you a, a home with a barbecue and a, you know, and, and, a, and a place to actually um, to live. As well as, you know, the hours of a sports writer, it's all nights and weekends. So you're really out of sync with your friends who are like, hey, let's go to happy hour. Let's do this. And you're like, "Ah, I got to go work. I got to cover a game. Oh, really? What game is it? You know, are you covering the Redskins? Oh, no. It's, you know, community college soccer (laughs) game. Um, So at any rate, you know, those things kind of wore on me. And um, uh, so eventually, though, I had a a colleague uh, from the newspaper who uh, moved over to... um, Uh, tech writing, uh, business-to-business newsletters and magazines. And, you know, the the funny thing I found out immediately is that, well, okay, look, if I was a sports writer, I mean, there's thousands of guys out there who love sports who can write. They don't have to pay you anything because they can get another one just like you in five minutes. But if you want to be a tech writer, that's just, shall we say, a little bit more dry. (laughs) So the talent pool of people who want to do that is much lower, hence they have to pay you more. So when I walked into my newspaper editor and said, you know, I got a, a job offer um, at, I think it was $34,000 for this um, uh, tech uh, publishing house. And he just jumped out of his chair, put his hand across the table and said, congratulations, I wish you well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, thanks. Uh, he said, you're going to be able to write about that stuff? And I said, I don't know, but for $34,000, I'm going to try. <laughs> and um, sure enough, I remember the very first... Uh, interview I did. Well, before I, I, I got there, I picked up a, um, a tape recorder that you could hook up to a phone. And I, I bought it, oddly enough, in uh, Rockville, uh, Maryland. And um, the person who was helping me was really nervous about selling me this. And finally, she just blurted out. She said, you know, it's illegal to tape people on the phone, don't you? <laughs> and I said, well, not if you tell them first that you're mm-hmm. recording them, then it's fine. I'm just doing it for accuracy. I'm a journalist. She said, oh, okay. Well, this is where Linda Tripp bought her recorder, you know, before she talked to Monica Lewinsky. So we're all a little bit <laughs> hyper about this. And I said, are you kidding? She said, no. Said, okay, well, I get the point. I'm doing this for my job. Mm-hmm. So it was cool. But anyway, that tape recorder saved me because 
in talking to all of these tech folks about fiber optics and telecom and what was essentially vaporware, um, it was a lot of jargon and things I'd never heard of. And to actually go back and uh, make sure I got it right uh, was extremely valuable. And that was, you know, that was from my journalism background, that, that thoroughness of making sure you get it right. And so I got, I did pretty well in that job. Um, but then when the telecom boom busted and the dot-com mm -hmm. boom busted, a lot of our subscribers went away. And basically then that, actually that same colleague went to the defense contracting industry. And oddly enough, believe it or not, it was right before 9-11. And um, they were working on a proposal and she said, Evan, we need some help uh, editing this proposal. Um, you know, would you be willing to do some freelance work? And I said, sure. And then 9-11 hit. And I remember two days afterwards, there were huge concrete barriers in front of our main entrance. And I said, well, you know, what's that for? And they said, well, all defense contractors are on high alert because there might be a, a truck bomb driven into our lobby at any point. So we want to have some barriers there. And I said, thank you for letting me know. This is what I'm taking on here. And so certainly after 9-11, then the work for defense contractors skyrocketed. And uh, there was a, a full-time job for me there very soon. And the, the pay was very good. And I stayed in that industry for quite a while. So think about that. I went from sports writing to telecom, fiber optics, to the defense industry, completely unrelated fields, fields I had to learn over and over again each time. But the background of writing and editing and being able to communicate with people, which are all kind of the backbones of, of marketing, um, those all gave me a foundation to give it a shot. And uh, so that really worked out, you know, very well. And uh, now just recently, I've taken on another industry, the, uh, the data center industry, which if you're listening to this at anywhere, it's probably going through a data center because that's where the internet goes through. We say it's where the cloud lives. <laughs> and um, so that's been a, a really neat uh, sort of progression of things. So that's interesting is, as you bring up kind of data centers and where the cloud lives. Um, I imagine as a marketer, that was a big challenge, a new industry to get into. And then also um, a little challenging to differentiate, right? Some people don't even know kind of what lives in a data center. What is a data center? How do you differentiate data centers um, as a B2B marketer in a field that may feel a little undifferentiated? How do you tackle that? Yeah, it is definitely a challenge. Um, people refer to the to data centers and those sort of industries as commoditized. It's basically something that's just pretty standard. And a lot of the aspects of data centers are basically the same. It's a, we call it, it's like a bank vault for computers. Um, you need to have the appropriate uh, conditions there for computers to thrive. It's like a, the perfect greenhouse for them, I guess. They have to have the right power supplied to them, the right cooling to make sure they don't overheat. Um, and all the right backup power and everything. I mean, the whole, <laughs> the whole backup power scenario is, it's incredible. It's a logistical triumph over uh, challenges, as well as security uh, that you need there to make sure everybody who's around these computers is someone who's supposed to be there. Um, so one of the things that differentiates us is actually, um, this is going to sound very strange, but I think it's our personality. And, and what I mean by that is, we have uh, very large data centers in Ashburn, Virginia, which is known actually as Data Center Alley. There are a gazillion data centers there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are these huge, just blank white buildings. They're, I've heard them referred to as like early 60s Soviet architecture. They're really <laughs> not very interesting or inspiring. Ours actually are, are the exact opposite. Uh, they have uh, purple and yellow and blue on them. And they're lit up at night. They're actually kind of cool looking. 
And uh, we're in the process of building a few more. Actually, we just got the purple paint on recently. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is our executives have a lot of personality. When we get them in speaking engagements at trade shows and other events, they're really personable. They tell stories. They're, they're interesting to listen to. They're not just sort of very dry, straightforward folks. And that gives us a bit of personality, too. And the other thing that we really do try to emphasize is our, um, we call them the remote hands and eyes. Uh, they're people in the data center who help our clients with their tasks. Extremely responsive people. You know, they've been known to help out, you know, uh, making sure that people can get there in, feet, in several feet of snow and under adverse conditions. And they really go the extra 10 miles to make sure that our clients have everything they need and everything is taken care of. Um, and that makes a big difference because, sure, the, the walls and the roof and the other infrastructure, people know how to do it. We also are able, though, to <clears throat> um, allow for the infrastructure to be put in more efficiently and with better equipment. And that can help uh, costs stay down and, um, and help continuity as well. So those are also some differentiating things for us. Yeah, I think as a as a marketer, it's probably very helpful to have some of that personality and have some of those other aspects, so you're not just one of of you know one of the same. Um, when you look at marketing, and we talked a little bit about this uh, before the show, you know, we kind of break some of that into paid and earned and owned. How do you approach that, and how do you kind of differentiate those areas? Yeah, well, so. So paid, well, you know, <laughs> um, it kind of is what it is. Uh, it gets you exposure, but, you know, people know you're paying for it. And I, I don't know that it necessarily has the same impact. You have, you're in complete control of it, you know, which is great. Um, but it's essentially, you know, an ad. And there's a place for that. But I don't think you can really depend on that. That's my least favorite one, actually. It's sort of like the last resort. <laughs> the earned is the gold standard. That's the money. That's the one where if we get media coverage, um, if we get people on social media talking about something that we did, uh, you know, retweeting or resharing or all those things, an impartial, you know, uncompensated person saying, hey, this is cool. You should pay attention to this. That's the best. And it's very, very hard to get. But boy, it does actually carry quite a bit of, of, uh, of weight. And that's why, you know, when you see um, people talking about social sleuthing to try to identify these influencers and micro influencers and all of these, you know, fancy terms we have for all these people, it can make a difference because it's all about, you know, what I call the, the currency of attention. You know, the currency of attention mm -hmm. is the most valuable thing and, and attention is so incredibly hard to get these days. So anything you can get that makes people think, this is legitimate, it's it's genuine, it's it's trustworthy, and it's interesting, then then you've got it. And just the last one, as you mentioned, about owned media. So things on our on our website, things that we have total ownership of, you have to have that. You know, that's your that's your address, it's your brick and mortar. And it is useful for sure. Um, essentially, you know, it's just another level of advertising per se, but it certainly is essential. And it can really help guide buying decisions. It gives people a sense of the the tone of the company. Um, as well as just all the specific nuts and bolts of the things that you're, that you're selling. Yeah. And kind of those own spaces, we've really seen a huge growth in the last three, four, five years of people focusing on content, creating mm -hmm. their own content brands as publishers, um, educating the buyer through your own channels. 
Um, what's your experience been there? Yeah, we've actually even seen um, you know new magazines coming out uh, in the in the data center industry. Um, we started actually our own in-house podcast as well called Inside Data Centers, and uh, we just actually finished. Uh, uh, say taping, nobody, ta- it's recording <laughs> our fourth episode. And we've had some, some really uh, great guests from outside the company come in and talk about various topics. Uh, so I think those things are certainly useful. Um, they're all kind of part of the larger effort to generate positive attention, help breed familiarity and establish trust. You don't buy anything from anybody or anyone that you don't trust. So the more people see that you're legitimate, that you know what you're doing and you can help them, yeah, then they'll then they'll trust you. So they do definitely add up. Yeah, no, we we definitely see that. So shifting gears for a minute, you and I yep. talked prior about um, just kind of your lifelong love of marketing. Yeah, um, and some of the things that have really stood out to you. So uh, maybe we'll lightning round a few of these and go deeper on a few of these. But um, one of the things we talked about is history's best marketing campaigns. Or what can we learn from it in particular? Maybe what can B two B marketers learn from some of history's great marketing campaigns, whether they're driven to consumers or driven to businesses. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You mentioned a lifelong love for marketing. It's true. I guess I didn't know it was marketing as I was being uh, infatuated with it, but certainly all the things, you know, commercials and, and print ads and magazines and billboards and newspaper NFL films. You said earlier, right? (laughs) Exactly. You know, um, all of that is marketing. Uh, It's just not, has, doesn't have a broad label across it that says that, but it's about, getting your attention and making an impression. So some of the things, you know, throughout history that I think are the most interesting, and, and we could do a, a Ken Burns, you know, type, uh, you know, documentary <laughs> about it. That Ken Burns, if you're listening, and I hope you are, think about that. And I'll be happy to be on that program as well. Um, you know, some of the ones, you know, Nike. Uh, Nike has been the subject of so many different studies about how the heck they went from, you know, a guy with a waffle iron making a shoe to, you know, the ultimate not just you know shoe brand, but just sports brand all the way across. And sure, they got lucky that Michael Jordan turned out to be a really good player. You know? <laughs> but beyond that, they did lots of other interesting things. I mean, they really kind of turned their essentially an ordinary product. And I'm sorry, Nike, but, you know, your, your shoes are fine, but they're not, you know, from another planet than anybody else's shoes. It, it's a good product, but it's not that much different than anybody else. But they turned their product into this, you know, I call it a vehicle for heroism. And it really is. And if you look at some of their classic ads, you know, there's one that I, I love. They had a campaign in the early 90s that featured um, uh, Nolan Ryan, uh, Barry Sanders, and Carlton Fisk. It might have featured some others, but those were three that I saw. And it was just this, this really fantastic uh, ad. And when you look at it, and if you, if you Google just, you know, Nike Barry Sanders ad, it is so amazing how they did this because the focus has nothing to do with the shoes. Another one that is one of my favorites from history. So Nike turns an ordinary product into a vehicle for heroism. Another uh, uh, industry turned an ordinary product into protection from desolation. And that industry is the deodorant industry. And they basically started in the early part of the 20th century with these really great print ads where they'd show this this woman, um, well-dressed woman, very, very attractive woman. Um, standing at a social function, and the text would say, think about how this must have looked in the early part of 20th century. The text would say, the most humiliating moment of my life when I overheard the cause of my unpopularity among men. So, you know, <laughs> the cause of her unpopularity among men was uh, was body odor. <laughs> 
And these companies, uh, there was one actually, incredibly enough, I'm not making this up, the company was called Odor Ono. And they had this uh, antiperspirant, which was originally created to um, prevent moisture on hands for people who uh, used uh, equipment and so forth. But they also found it worked on on, uh, armpits as well. And they started marketing this, but they needed to create a need. They needed people to realize that they were smelling not so good. People didn't care. They didn't really notice. But when these ads came out and said, well, if this is the way that you are smelling, you're going to be not approached by other people, but we can help you. We can save you from this humiliation. And it was incredibly effective. Um, another one, you know, uh, a company that has been studied over and over, uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, they create an experience, not a product. And I remember the very first time a friend of mine went to a Starbucks and another friend was just making fun of him, just busting on him. Keith, don't you know coffee is free? You get coffee at the office. It's free. Are you, you really paid $3 for that <laughs> cup of coffee? Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I just like going there. I thought, just like going there, didn't you, didn't you just want coffee? He's like, no, it's like, like going there. And I was like, what is this place? And sure enough, you go there and it's like an oasis from your day. It's got the right colors and the right lighting and the right uh, aroma and, you know, the, the way that the products are, are set up. That's all marketing. I mean, that's all a very, very purposeful way of marketing. So when you come in there, you feel good. And frankly, Starbucks coffee, again, it's like Nike shoes. Is it any better than any other coffee? I don't know. I mean, it's, but the experience makes you think so. Um, just two more I want to hit on this uh, before we're, you know, uh, we, we move on. Another one um, I call humanizing a service. So two of my favorites from this are Southwest Airlines. Okay, it's a plane. Mm-hmm. Planes, planes fly from one point to another. Hopefully they all do it about the same way. Um, Southwest Airlines had a campaign a couple of years ago. It's called Every Seat Has a Story. And I thought it was brilliant. Basically, they connected with the passengers to let them know that your, their experience was really important to them. And this Every Seat Has a Story, it kind of reminded me of years before that. Uh, I think it was UPS or it might have been FedEx had a campaign about um, we don't know which one of the, of the packages is the golden package, and therefore we must treat them all as if they were. And it was a very lyrical, fantasy-like campaign. And But the idea that, okay, if you have a, a product that is just something that is, is lifeless, but if you connect it with something that's very, very important in life. And in the Southwest Airlines campaign, they showed people were on planes to get home to see, you know, a sick child or a, or a new puppy or to go to a new job and start over or any number of the things that made you think about everybody's on a plane for a reason. And those reasons are often really important. And that this company kind of connected with that. I thought it was really well done. And along those lines, the humanizing a service aspect, you know, Apple, the whole I'm a PC, I'm a Mac campaign, Mm -hmm. which was over 60 commercials. And I understand there were dozens more that were, that Steve Jobs wouldn't let out, but apparently were considered really good. Um, You know, brilliant. It, It totally gave a personality to this thing that that was just the ultimate non-personality, just a computer. It's the thing everybody was scared of that would take our personalities. And, you know, those were just just so well done. Then the very last one, the one I think absolutely without question, the greatest marketing campaign of all time, not even debatable, not even arguable, not even uh, discussable, is the lottery. Okay? Because you're taking something that you have no chance in. I mean, mathematicians, statisticians will tell you you have a bigger chance of getting hit by lightning you know, a million times and winning a lottery. And it is kind of true, but they have the greatest slogan of all time. You have to be in it to win it. And really, when you think about it, if your job is a marketing executive 
sell something that you can't win. I mean, you know, <laughs> but you want people to spend not just $1, but $5, $10, $20 on it. Figure it out. And they did it. I mean, they did it. And they always, they highlight the people that do win. Of course, you could spend the rest of your life reading the names of people that didn't win. But they just, they, they highlight the ones that do. And people do it. And they sell hope is what they sell. They're selling hope. So that idea of selling hope somehow, even though you don't really have a product and, and anybody, you know, with common sense understands it's, it's a virtually no chance, but they did it. And I'm always amazed, you know, and I applaud the lottery for their brilliant marketing success. Now, what you didn't know before we started this podcast is that way back in my ad agency days, I worked on a state lottery account. Are you serious? So I am, I'm quite familiar with the lottery and I believe I'm still ineligible to win. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I would say if it truly is a game of chance, which makes it legal and not a game of skill, yes. then obviously I would be able to fight that if I won because I, I have the same chance as anyone else. That's right. You can't alter the ping pong balls or, or you know that kind of thing. Yeah, it, that's really interesting. So that's what people thought about the NBA draft. Yes, the Patrick Ewing uh, frozen envelope <laughs> there. Yes, as it were. So yeah, cool. Well, diving into a little bit of a different topic, um, you know, as as we've looked at some of these great campaigns, I think historically one of the things that hasn't been as big a part of it that is sort of the blessing and the curse for B two B marketers today is measurement, mm -hmm. right? So we can view these impactful images, but. A lot of times they weren't being held to, okay, how many people clicked on that ad or filled out a form or, you know, engaged somewhere in our B2B services or product marketing cycle. Mm -hmm. um, as a marketer, what do you measure? What does your leadership team pay attention to? Um, are those the same things? And and if you can't say it on air, I understand. Uh, but, but you know, how do you how do you look at kind of the the analytics and data portion of marketing? No, it's a great question, and as you mentioned, it is a, a blessing and a curse for sure. You know, when they invented the internet, I don't know if they really had a sense of this will be great. We can measure everything. We can keep track of every click. We can you know have all these reports and spreadsheets and everything. I don't know if that was something purposeful or if they just said, oh, by the way. We can measure every click. We can keep track of everything. We can generate these spreadsheets. So let's just, you know, generate those without thinking if they're really telling us something valuable or not. The bottom line is that it does, it, it's become a, a way for Google and others to charge people money, you know, as per all the clicks and the pays and all that. So it certainly works into a um, revenue stream for sure. Uh, you know, I think that <laughs> sort of on a, on a larger human context, the quest, the search, the thirst for causation rather than correlation, that really crosses so many different elements of the human experience. Starting, you know, think about you know, the poor weather people we see on the news every day. They're trying to use past experiences to say, this is going to cause this and this is why it's going to rain today. And of mm -hmm. course, many times it doesn't happen, even with all of their data and everything else that they have. Um, you know, sports handicappers say past performance will tell us this thing will happen and we're going to play it that way. doesn't really work sometimes. Same exact thing with marketing. We try to say because, you know, we've done this this way and we've gotten this indicator that then we can hope that if we do it this way, we'll get this result. And even something like, you know, the clicks and everything, all those great metrics, um, it's still very hard to sort of qualify the quality of those clicks. So, you know, I always say, 
Um, we'd love to show you that we got so many clicks for something, but if we don't really know how far along somebody is who's clicking on it, how close they are to buying or what they've clicked on otherwise, you know, where their mind is, then I can't really say for sure how, how great we're doing per se. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'd rather have a few people clicking who are going to buy than hundreds clicking who are just wasting time. Um, so our management, they understand that. And really, so they're just kind of looking at the overall picture of um, it comes down to revenue at the end of the day. They don't really care you know, how, how they get it. Uh, certainly, some of it will be as a result of what marketing does as part of an overall effect, for sure. Um, I mean, we've had people you know, come to us and say, look... <laughs> I'm just so ticked off at my current data center. I got to get out of there. Do you mm-hmm. guys have space? <laughs> and we're like, come on over. So, you know, great. Um, other people, it may take them a year and a half of research and following and deciding and going away and coming back before they eventually give us a chance to even have a conversation with them. Um, so there's just so many different ways it can go. And we're, we're constantly as human beings in search of something that is predictable and repeatable. If we do this, if we do A plus B, we'll get result C. Everybody wants that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with the internet, it's so tempting because you have all this data and all this information and you say, I have all this data. I should be able to figure out what I need to do for A plus A and B to get to C. But it just kind of rarely goes that way. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the combination of, you know, people call it, you know, the, the gut feeling uh, in addition to data, you know, they are kind of connected. And sometimes the data helps give you a gut feeling. That, that can certainly be. Um, but I think that having that sense overall of if you're doing something, and you're getting a lot of results, it doesn't mean that's going to continue. It's kind of like in a, in a football game. If you throw the, the ball to the same receiver three times and you got it down the field, that's great, but keep doing it. It might not work out too well. So maybe go to somebody else or try a different, uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard thing to do because if you're seeing some kind of result, you just want to keep going with it. That's a creature of habit sort of thing. But in many ways, it's a matter of, okay, keep that in your, in your, you know, in your arsenal there, but try other things too, because you don't know when those things are about to work. So I think that, um, you know, having, I think that one of the key things is, is having interest in doing a number of different things within your budget, within your resources, within your, your uh, team skills, um, but not really shoehorning yourself into, into just one or two sorts of things, because there's more things that might be able to work for you. Yeah, it's funny. Back in the day when I was doing a lot of uh, direct response digital stuff, we used to have a saying, the conversion rate's too high. <laughs> and it would really kind of throw people off. We're like, no, you, we're not trying enough, right? If the conversion rate is too high, we're not experimenting enough. We're only doing the things that we know will get us a certain return, but we're not trying enough different things to figure out, could we be doing even better? Right. Or you know, did this experiment not work, right? So it's like, I would, are we too successful? Yes, right now we're too successful because we're not diversifying enough. That's an interesting point. You know, it's sort of like, you know, are we just preaching to our choir, to mm-hmm. our, you know, our yeah. base? Or are there other people out there that could be part of our base, that could be buyers that we're not reaching because we're not, and sometimes it takes a while to reach them, but it can, it can happen. It, it can pay off. Um, you know, you look at any number of different products that have started out as a product for just one gender or another. And they always realize at some point, we're only selling a half the population. That's no mm-hmm. good. Figure out a way. Figure out a way to sell the other half. I don't, you know, figure out a product. But if we have established brand awareness, let's figure out a product to do. I remember hearing something about, you know, Levi's. 
And at some point they said, we're only selling to half your closet with jeans. We want to sell to the rest of your closet with jackets and other things. You know, people know Levi's, they love Levi's. They like everything about it. Figure out a way to get the rest of the closet. Yeah. From the belt up. (laughs) From the belt up. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it's that kind of thinking that I think can really help help companies kind of uh, move forward. So one final question. Uh, If the Evan of today could provide some advice to an earlier career Evan, whether that's uh, sports writer Evan or fiber optics writer Evan, um, what what would you share knowing what you know now? Sure, sure. Well, the the first one is don't eat so much fast food after midnight. Uh, That would be (laughs) a a definite. Um, And and the other one, you know, would probably be uh, in, in the course of your career, as you're working with people um, of all different temperaments and so forth, you know, to pick your battles carefully, um, at which point the early career Evan would probably say to me, you know, you still don't do that right. Shut up. <laughs> um, at which point we'd probably both say maybe the retired Evan will have a bit more, a bit more wisdom for us. But <laughs> it's one of those things that I know that sometimes I don't do well, but I'm aware that it's something that I, I wish I could do better still to this day. It just in terms of picking battles well um, and working with people, uh, I think I do try to definitely uh, work with everybody and appreciate everybody as much as possible. Great advice. Great recommendations. And thanks for joining us today. 